Well, God's taught me some things over the years as well, and I'm sure he's teaching you some things. Here's a couple things I've learned. Going to jail can be very satisfying. Absolutely. Been a prison chaplain for 21 years, and there's some satisfaction in doing ministry in jail. And some of them, uh, that satisfaction is sitting right in this room. Second thing God's taught me over the years, not all mission fields are overseas. There's a mission field right here in downtown Hyannis that we're a part of. And there's people all around us who need need to know Jesus. So you don't have to go to a foreign country to be a missionary. Another thing God's taught me is God will use unbelievers sometimes to teach me hard lessons. Sometimes we think we've got it figured out, and then an unbeliever comes along and says something that just kind of rips your heart out. But But they're right. And then the fourth thing, God's compassion for people far outweighs mine. Sometimes I think I'm a compassionate person, but when I compare it to Jesus, not even close. So the passage we're going to look at, if you have a Bible and you want to start to turn there, is Acts chapter 20. I'm going to read that passage. It's a little bit lengthy, but uh, I'll read it in a minute. And really what I want to talk about this morning is Jeremy's been spending some weeks in some, uh, a look at the early church, how it started, some of the things that were going on in the early church, uh, how they fellowshiped together and listened to the apostles' teaching and broke bread together and prayed together. This morning, I'm going to look at six characteristics of a healthy church from Acts 20. Last time we were together, Jeremy taught on uh, Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road where Jesus ran into him, knocked him down, and he, he came to know Christ. The passage I'm reading from and talking about is years later. Paul was saved in, in Acts 9. This is Acts 20, and it's years and years later after this and some of the ministry that's taken place. And Paul talks to the Ephesian elders and gives them a, a kind of a shot in the arm as he heads back to Jerusalem, probably the last time we'll ever see them. But before I read it, uh, Hebrew says this, we must pay much closer attention to the truth we've learned so we don't drift away from it. You ever think about drifting? Drifting just happens without us ever even not- noticing what's going on. You're, you're on a little rubber raft in the, in the water, and you're just sitting there floating r- along, then all of a sudden, an hour later, you find yourself miles from where you were, and you didn't even know how you got there because you just drifted. And sometimes in the Christian life, we can drift and find ourselves way, way, way away from God without even knowing it. It just happens. And so we have to be very cautious and very careful. Pay close attention to the truth so we don't drift away from it. Amen. Right. And so I say that especially as it relates to getting, getting God's word right and getting the gospel right. We don't want to drift away from it. Share this illustration of the importance of getting an, an email right in reference to that. It's, just, it's a little short story. After being snowbound for several weeks last winter, a Seattle man went to the airport to hop on a plane to head for Miami Beach for some time in the sun. He was going to meet his wife in Miami the following day at the conclusion of her business trip in Minneapolis. Unfortunately, there was a mix-up at the boarding gate, and the man was told he would have to wait for a later flight. He appealed to the supervisor, but was told it was, it was not the airline's mistake and further complaints would do no good. Upon his arrival the next morning, he discovered that Miami was having a heat wave, and the clerk at the desk gave him a message that his wife would arrive later as planned. He could hardly wait to jump in the pool and cool off, so he quickly sent an email to his wife, but in his haste, he made an error in the email address. Here's where it gets interesting. 
Instead of his wife receiving the message, it arrived at the home of an elderly preacher's wife whose husband died the day before. When the grieving widow opened her, her email, she took one look at the monitor and let out a scream and fell to the floor. Her family rushed in and, and saw the message on the screen which said, Dearest wife, departed yesterday as you know. Just now got checked in. There was some confusion at the gate. When I appealed, I was denied. Receive confirmation of your arrival later today. Love you. P.S. Things are not as we thought. You're going to be surprised how hot it is down here. <laughs> the importance of getting an email right, right? How much more important it is to get the word of God right? We can't fudge on this one. We've got to get it right. So Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders is found in Acts chapter 20. I'm just going to read a large portion of it, starting in verse 17. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with humility and tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. I did not shrink from declaring you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now behold, bounds in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and affliction await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of our God. Now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. So that's near the end of his message there, but he's talking to these Ephesian elders, and I want to give you basically six principles, six characteristics of what I consider to be a healthy church found in this passage. There's probably plenty more, but we'll just look at six this morning. The first one is a team approach. Paul says he called to, to himself the elders of the church. Notice that the word elders is plural. Every time you see that word in the New Testament, it's plural. And we're talking about a team approach here, more than one. Winning teams have figured out that every member on the team is important. Not every member has a prominent role, but every member on the team is important in order to be successful. You might think of like special teams in football. They're not the prominent players, but they play an important role, or six-man in basketball. Not the star player, but a very important role, just the same. Fourth line in hockey if you're a sports guy. Right? Very, very important, but not the prominent role on the team. Crucial, but not prominent. On a successful team, even the best players know how important the, the, the second string guys are just to be able to get a breather. Michael Jordan can play 
for a while, but he's got to get a breather somewhere, and so another guy has to come in and give him a break, right? I would guess that he was probably one of the best basketball players there is. And even a team of five less skilled players he could not beat, even though he's the best player in the world. Why is that? Because he wouldn't have no one to pass to, no one to pass to him. He'd never get a break running up and down the floor. He'd get tired after a couple minutes. Those five guys could pass it around, take their time. And, and so even the, the, uh, uh, the number one player could not be a less successful team. So as Paul's talking to the church here in Ephesus, he always, not in this passage, but when he was talking about the church, he always used the idea of a body. The body has many parts, but it's still one body. We've got hands and feet and head and fingers and toes and eyes and ears, all different parts of the body, but it makes one body. And he uses that picture to describe the church, that we are many different parts, but we're one body in Christ. Here's a statement I found. The church cannot function at full capacity without all the parts of the body doing what they were designed to do. Did you catch that? What is that, what is that saying? That's saying that you're important, that you have value, that you are essential to this body of Christ at Seven Mile Road if you consider yourself a member of this church. Everybody has a part to play. You're very, very important and valuable. None of us is wired exactly the same way, and yet God has given each and every one of us a gift, and that gift was to be, is to be used to build up the body of Christ. That's the primary use of the gifts that God has given us, that we build one another up so the body of Christ gets stronger and healthier. So that means what? If you don't do your part, then this body will never function the way it's supposed to, at least the way God's designed it to. And so you have a part to play. Whether it's a major role or a minor role, it's still an important role. We are a team, right? Someone I knew, uh, another pastor, said this often. No one doing everything, but everyone doing something. All right? I think that's a great statement. Nobody does everything, but everybody should do something if you consider yourself a member of this, this church. So that's the first thing, learning to work together as a team, a team approach uh, to make, makes, makes part of a healthy church. The second pr principle we find in here is found in verse 19. It says, serving the Lord with humility, tears, and with trials. Servant leadership. I think that's another important characteristic of a healthy church. If you're doing any kind of ministry, you're a leader. Pastor Jeremy is not the only leader here. Right? If, if you're doing any kind of ministry here at the church, you are a leader. So when we talk about serving, what are we really talking about? Here it is in its simplest form, to become aware of and to be ready to meet the needs of others. That's what serving is, meeting the needs of others. It's not a difficult concept, and great leaders are great servants first. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, clothe yourselves with humility and learn to serve one another. In Colossians chapter 3, we read this, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, and serve one another. And then in verse 19 here, it says, serving the Lord with humility. The common word in all three of those passages is what? Humility. Listen, proud people don't serve. Arrogant people don't serve. They want to be served. And so humility is huge when it comes to serving. Isn't Jesus our example? He's God. He's the creator of the universe. Greatest leader that ever walked on the earth, and yet serving people was never beneath him. He served everyone he could, and we need to follow that example serving uh, one another as best we can. He humbled himself to the point where he washed the dirty feet of the creatures he created. 
just think of that. He's, he's the God of the universe. And yet he humbles himself to the point where he washes dirty feet. It's an, it's an amazing concept to think about. Pride would never choose to serve that way. And we have a Savior who's not prideful but is very humble, loves people, and loves to serve. And we need to follow his example. Listen, when pride and arrogance take root in a church, all bets are off. We don't want to be prideful. We don't want to be arrogant. We want to be servants of the Lord. Because when that happens, Jesus' sheep are in trouble, aren't they? Yes, the sheep are in trouble. So as part of the body of believers, serving is a core principle uh, for us here. So we've got team approach and serving as leaders. The third principle, and I'm being, I'm being very simple with these. We could expand on these quite a bit. Third one is bold proclamation of the gospel, verse 20. Wrong, wrong page, sorry. Verse 20 of our passage says, How I did not shrink from declaring you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house. A bold proclamation of the gospel. Uh, we were praying this morning about Somalia and just praying that the, the Christians there would be bold with the gospel because they're in a 99% Muslim country and they're not even allowed to exist for all practical purposes. So boldness is huge. But don't we need to be bold as well right here in the United States? I mean, we're free to share the gospel, but sometimes we're, we're afraid to. We dare not be afraid to share the gospel with people so others can get to know who Christ is. But bold proclamation of the gospel. I think some, one of the reasons that we aren't as bold as we could be is a term called political correctness. I don't know if you know what that means, but that means it's the idea of if you say something that's wrong or even right, you could be blackballed for it. And so people become fearful to say anything. They don't say anything at all. We become labeled intolerant, bigots, unloving if we say that Jesus is the answer. Listen, I think it's the most loving thing you can do is to tell people that Jesus is the answer because it's an opportunity to rescue them and save them. When we tell people that Jesus is the only way, they say it's way too exclusive. The problem is Jesus is the one that said that. And so when we say that, we're just basically telling them what Jesus already said. John 14, 6 says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus said. So if you have an issue with the statement that Jesus is the only way, then you have an issue with Jesus, not with me. I'm just telling you what he said. We don't need to be shy about that. Because Jesus is the only way. He didn't say, I am a way, I am a truth, I am a life. He says, I'm the way, the only way to get to the Father. And so we don't want to shrink away from that. I think uh, I would even argue that not telling people that Jesus is the only way is an unloving thing. To walk right by and do nothing, that's unloving. But you know what? I think most of our culture, much of our culture, I can't say most, I don't know, but much of our culture doesn't want accountability. They don't want to be accountable to anyone for anything ever, especially when it comes to telling them that there's a supreme being that wants to be part of their life and that we've got to humbly serve him. In loving lost people, it can be painful because not everybody accepts the truth and not everybody wants to face their spiritual condition. Some people don't even want to go near it. But that's no excuse for us to be silenced. I wonder if we really grasped the severity of what's going to happen to them if they die without Christ. 
Do we really get a handle on that and understand that if they die without Christ, they're lost forever in a place separated from God forever? I, I wonder if we really understand that. Be kind of like having a cure and holding it, holding back the medicine for someone that's sick by not telling people about Jesus. My dad died when I was about 12 of cancer. Kind of wrecked me for a few years. But what if there was a doctor who had the cure for my dad's cancer, but he didn't tell anybody? He's kind of hanging on to it for himself in case one of his kids gets sick so we'd have the cure for him. What if that happened? I'd track that guy down if I couldn't ask him why. Why didn't you share the cure with somebody? My dad may not have died. But that's kind of what I'm talking about here. If we keep the message to ourselves, it's like saying, I've got the cure, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. We have the cure for the spiritual condition out there, and his name is Jesus, and we need to tell people. We need to be bold about our proclamation of the gospel. So a team approach, servant leadership, and a bold proclamation. The fourth one, and this is probably the most important one I'll share with you this morning, a clear presentation of the gospel. He says this in verse 21. Uh, he talks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of confusion when it comes to the gospel out there today. There really is. Now, what if God, you're at work tomorrow, you're, at, you're downtown at the store, you're in your neighborhood walking around, whatever, and God gives you an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. Would you know the scriptures to share? Would you have the right words to share that would connect that person and bring them into a relationship with Jesus? Do you know that? If you're a Christian here, you ought to. Some of the confusion out there comes from people who subtract from the message, people who add to the message, and people who sidestep the message, and every one of them are incorrect in their approach to the gospel. So let me share what these three are. Those who subtract from the gospel, they pre present a gospel that takes away from the miraculous and the supernatural, especially as it relates to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right? And, and they'll share a message. Paul said this, if Christ has not been raised, we are most to be pitied of all people. Why? Why should Christians be most pitied if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead? Because it'll mean we've believed a lie. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then what are we doing? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of Christianity. It what make, it's what makes Christianity different than every other religion out there, is the resurrection. Buddha's still in the grave. Muhammad's still in the grave. Jesus is alive. Yes. He's risen. We serve a risen Savior, as the old hymn used to say. Right? That miracle-working, supernatural God that we worship, he is alive. He came out of the grave, and there is none that rival him. And so we, have to, we can't subtract from that. We can't say there is no resurrection. There are some who would try to argue that. Second way they confuse the gospel is by sidestepping it. And they do this by emphasizing social concerns, things like feeding the homeless, working with addicts, clothing people, and so forth. Those are all great things, and they're good services, and they help people, yes. But telling someone or giving someone a set of clothes is not the gospel. And feeding the homeless is not the gospel. It's something Christian people ought to be doing, yes, for sure. But it's not the gospel. Meeting the physical needs of people is not the gospel. 
You can feed every hungry person on the planet and clothe every homeless person and give them a new set of clothes. But if you do not connect it to Jesus, what happens? In the end, they die and they end up separated from God forever because they've never heard that Jesus is their savior. We have to connect it to Jesus. Yes, feed homeless people. Yes, serve the community that way. But do it with a connection to Jesus Christ. Then there's a third way they confuse the gospel, and that's by adding to it. I think this is the most devastating one of all. Because people who share this kind of gospel, they talk about God and Jesus in the Bible, and what they're saying sounds like the gospel, but it's not. Because they're adding all kinds of things to the message to say, if you don't do these things, you can't be saved. Things like getting baptized, water baptized. Things like uh, saying a certain prayer. Things like confessing your sins publicly. Although none of those things are conditions to be saved. None of them are. And so what they're saying sounds like the gospel, but it's not. Jesus became a man, was willing to die and pay for my sins, your sins. He, was, he died, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day for me and for you. That's the good news. That's the message of the gospel. That's the content of the gospel. It's never about what I can do. It's about what Jesus already did. And the focus is on his completed work, not what I, I have to do. There's so many people out there, you ask them, well, you think you're a good person? They say, yeah, I am. Well, if we get to God by being good, how good would we have to be? Scripture says we'd have to be perfect. And none of us are. So, but Jesus was, and so we can go to the one who was perfect, who was willing to die and pay for our sins. It'd be like if you have a mortgage, and you go down to the bank to pay your mortgage. The bank says, oh, somebody already paid your mortgage off. Oh, no, no, I want to pay my mortgage. It's already paid off. No, I want to pay my mortgage. That's what we're doing when we say, when we don't accept that Jesus has completed the entire thing. We either trust him or we don't. But he did everything necessary to save us. I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. I'm a sinner. I'm lost. But God offers me a gift, and that gift is eternal life. And that's what we have to kind of keep in mind. It's important we get the message right. So let me give you a very simple, clear statement of what the gospel is. The content of the message is death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's what 1 Corinthians 15 says. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. Paul says right there what it is. What you received in which you, in which you stand, which you are saved, holding fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. He says this, I delivered to you as of first importance, and I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the content of the message, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's the content of the message. But what does God offer us? He offers us eternal life. And eternal life understood correctly is a relationship with God that can never end. But here's what John says in 1 John 5, verse 11 through 13. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has this life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have this life. Right? It's that simple. The, the offer is eternal life, a relationship with God that can never end. So the content, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus the offer, eternal life, and the conditions. This is where the confusion comes in. 
The condi- what are the conditions to be saved? Does anyone know? I'm putting you on the spot here. What's the Bible word? Believe. Believe in Jesus. Yeah. His death, burial, and resurrection, he offers me the gift of eternal life when I believe in him for that life. I don't have to go to church. I think going to church is a good thing. I don't even have to read a Bible, although reading the Bible is a good thing. I have to believe that what Jesus did for me was enough to take care of my entire sin problem. When we believe that, he offers us the gift of eternal life. And so let's not add to the message. Let's not subtract from the message. Let's not sidestep the message. Let's remember that the message is his death, burial, and resurrection. When I believe in him for eternal life, that's the gift I receive. John 3.16, most of you know that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. We need to personalize that. Here's Here's what I mean. For God so loved Dave Robbins that he gave his only son that if Dave Robbins believes in him, Dave Robbins won't perish, but Dave Robbins will have everlasting life. Put your name in there, because that's what we're talking about here. Eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing, nothing else. Faith, belief in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. So that's the fourth principle, the fourth characteristic of a healthy church, understanding and and making sure we get get a clear presentation of the gospel down. Fifth principle, Holy Spirit-led. Verse 22, back in Acts. Paul says this in verse 22. Now behold, bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. That word bound is an interesting word. It means to be shackled. It's, It's this picture of the Holy Spirit capturing us and leading us away. So the question is, have you been, have you been captured by the Holy Spirit? Has the Holy Spirit gotten hold of your life if you're a believer here today? And you're starting to be led by him instead of by the flesh. That's the difference here for the Christian. You're either going to be led by your flesh, your old lifestyle, your old hats, haunts and habits, or you're going to be led by the Spirit of God and, and move in a good direction with your life. Has the Spirit captured you? There's no better way to live, guys. Once the Spirit of God has, has hold of your life, there's joy, there's purpose, there's fulfillment. Abundant life, Jesus talked about. Paul said this in Galatians 5.16. Live by the Spirit or be led by the Spirit and you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. In Romans 8, he said, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you're led by the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will have abundant life. So eternal life, what you receive through faith in Jesus, but abundant life, what you enjoy when you're led by the Spirit. Romans 8? Yep. Romans chapter 8. In John 10, Jesus says this, I come to give you life, what kind of life? Eternal life. And I come to give it to you in abundance. That's the abundant life. So eternal life through faith in Jesus, abundant life through being led by the Spirit. No better way to live for the Christian. How are you going to know if you're being led by the Spirit? Two things. Number one, your life will be in line with Scripture. Jesus said, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Your life won't contradict the Word of God if you're being led by the Spirit. If you're being led by the flesh, yes, we contradict the Word of God all the time because the flesh is in charge. We want the Spirit to be in charge and and leading us. 
Second thing is you'll glorify Jesus Christ through how you live. You know, that's the Spirit's primary role is to glorify Jesus. Well, if you're a believer here, the Spirit of God lives inside you. And as we live led by the Spirit, our lives glorify Jesus Christ. That's how it works. Jesus said, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will glorify me. And the Spirit of truth came in Acts chapter 2 when the church began. Every believer in Jesus Christ has the Spirit of God in them. And collectively, the body of Christ has the Spirit of God. And so we have an opportunity day in and day out to bring glory and honor to Jesus. That's how you'll know you're being led by the Spirit, because your life glorifies Jesus. So we're born by the Spirit in order to be led by the Spirit, in order to glorify Jesus by the Spirit, and in order to enjoy life in the Spirit. That's principle number five. And then finally, number six, and we'll begin to wrap it up here, Jesus focused intentionally. This is a characteristic of a healthy church, that we are focused on Jesus. Look at how many times in this passage that Jesus is on Paul's mind. In verse 19, serving the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus. Verse 24, the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. Verse 28, care for the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own son, Jesus. Verse 35, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus when he said it is better give than, than to receive. Je- Jesus is all over Paul's message here to the Ephesian elders. He's thinking about Jesus and everything he's saying here. And that's what we need to do. Jesus ought to be front and center in everything we do as, as a church because this is his church. This isn't some man's church. This is Jesus' church. Remember his words, I will build my church. It's his church, and we need to remember that. Now, there are people out there debating what the Sunday morning church service is for. Is it for believers or is it for unbelievers? Those who decide it's for believers say it's a time to gather the sheep so they can be fed the word and grow. So discipleship is the focus. Nothing wrong with that. Those who have decided that Sunday morning is for unbelievers see it as a time to invite the lost so they can hear the gospel and be saved. And so evangelism becomes the focus. Discipleship or evangelism, that's kind of the argument. Which one is it for? I would argue that evangelism is very important and discipleship is very important. But you know what? Neither of those are the reason we come here on Sunday morning. We come here on Sunday morning to do what? To worship Jesus. He should be front and center in everything we do. Yes, discipleship might take place while we're here. And evangelism might take place while we're here. But we're here for Jesus, to worship him more than anything else. That's what Sunday morning is for, to worship our Savior, Jesus Christ. We sing to him, we recognize his presence, he should be front and center in everything. It's all about Jesus. And so those six things we've looked at this morning, characteristics of a healthy church, a team approach, servant leadership, a bold proclamation of the gospel, a clear presentation of the gospel, Holy Spirit led, and Jesus focused intentionally. Let me close with an illustration. When Billy Graham was in his 90s, he was battling Parkinson's. I know a little bit about that. A group of church leaders invited him to a luncheon in his honor. He initially hesitated to accept the invitation because of his illness. Then the leader said, we don't want you to prepare a message or anything like that, Billy. We just want to, want to honor you. And so Billy agreed to go. After they said a whole bunch of flattering things about him and nice things about him, he stepped to the podium and shared the following. I'm reminded today of Albert Einstein, the great physicist who was honored recently as man of the century in Time magazine. 
Dr. Einstein was traveling on a train when the conductor came along punching tickets and Einstein couldn't find his. The conductor said, Dr. Einstein, don't worry about it. I know who you are. We all know who you are. I'm sure you purchased a ticket. Einstein nodded appreciatively and the conductor continued to punch tickets. As the conductor was getting ready to move to the next car, he turned and noticed Einstein down on his hands and knees looking for his ticket. The conductor rushed back and said, Dr. Einstein, don't worry about it. I know who you are. Einstein looked at him and said, young man, I also know who I am, but I have no idea where I'm going. I need that ticket. <laughs> After telling the story, Billy Graham said, see this suit I'm wearing? It's brand new. My family has been concerned about me and my messy appearance lately. So I went out and bought a new suit for this luncheon and for one other occasion. And that other occasion is my funeral. I'm gonna be buried in this suit. When I die, I don't want you to think about this suit. This is what I want you to remember. I not only know, where I, know who I am, but I also know where I'm going. And that's my, the question I leave with you this morning. Do you know where you're going this morning? Have you put your faith, your trust in Jesus this morning? That's what it's all about. If you don't have that, you're gonna lose it in the end, folks. Belief in Jesus Christ for eternal life. That's what we have to keep in mind. Do you know where you're going?